Well, that leads us right into the scripture for today. Um, for the next several weeks, we are going to be in what is known as the Gospel Lectionary. And the, this year's Gospel is the Gospel of Matthew. And so um, today we get to start off the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll have another couple of weeks in the Sermon on the Mount um, before we have to go to other things. But I want to give you a little bit of context before I read. Um, because what has happened just prior to this, um, very briefly, we saw in chapter 3 of, John, of Matthew's Gospel, uh, John the Baptist preaching and baptizing people, and then Jesus came to him to be baptized, and the dove descended and said, this is you know, my beloved son. And then after that, Jesus went out to the wilderness and was tempted of the devil for 40 days. And then when he came back, he went up to Galilee, and that's where he began his public ministry. And Galilee was an interesting place. It was up north, um, the northern part of the country, down around Jerusalem. Well, you know, that was the big city and, you know, the important place, and um, it was, you know, pretty orthodox, and it was also pretty protected. It was not real easy to get to Jerusalem, actually. Galilee was totally different. Galilee was up in the north, and it was on the trade routes, and it was surrounded pretty much by non-Jewish people. Um, because you had the Samaritans to the south and the Phoenicians that were over by the Mediterranean Sea and then to the north and the east you had um, the Syrians. So, so Galilee is this place that people were coming and going and it was pretty heavily populated, kind of, you know, it was countryside, it was the breadbasket, if you will, of the country, but still there were lots of people there and it was into this hubbub, if you will, that Jesus begins his public ministry. And he started off by going around to the towns of the synagogue and saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. That was his basic message. But he needed to give more serious teaching and more profound teaching, if you will. And so that's what we get in the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to be starting off um, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and I invite you as I read, listen for the word of the Lord. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you 
when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, when I was growing up, I guess it was kind of typical for families in that day, um, we had a jungle gym in the backyard. And my brother, who is three years older than I, and we had two older sisters, but he and I were kind of playmates. We've spent hours and hours out there on that jungle gym. And one of the things that I particularly enjoyed doing in those days was to hoist myself up on that crossbar that you know went between the posts, and then I would move to the center of it and hang there by my knees, and you know flop my head down. And it was such a fascinating way to look at the world. You know, all of a sudden, up was down, and down was up, and that view just gave everything a new perspective. And during those growing up years, I did something else, and it was kind of crazy. But I remember on various occasions, lying on the living room floor, you know, flat on my back, and I would look up to the ceiling, and then I would start imagining if the ceiling were the floor. You know, if the ceiling were the floor, in that case, there would be lots of clear space, but I would have had to have walked around the light fixture because it would protrude up. And then if I wanted to go into another room, it would have meant stepping over several inches of wall. You know, and I used to just imagine that. And you know, I stand here before you and I think, well, boy, this sounds pretty weird, doesn't it? But I, I realized that I was kind of a weird kid. And then I grew up to this, be this very eccentric adult. So I guess it all comes together. But I like to think it was good exercise for my imagination in those days. But I would do that, and I would think about that. But, you know, of course, I couldn't stay on the floor forever. Eventually, I had to get up and put my feet on the floor and get on with life as it was, furniture and all. But as I was reflecting on today's scripture, and not only on these Beatitudes, but just on on the sum of Jesus' teaching, which was kind of summed up here in the Beatitudes, but all of his teaching, I thought about that. And what I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that the world that we live in is really upside down. We live in an upside down world. And, and the thing is that many, many people, and I would suggest even most people, don't even begin to realize how upside down the world is. I think humanity has been living in a world that has been upended for so long that pretty much everybody thinks, you know, whatever happens, well, you know, that's just the way the world works. That's the way things go. That particular way of being or acting is pretty inevitable. But I'm here this morning to let all of us in on a little secret. That line of thinking and that way of understanding 
is wrong, that this has to be the way the world works. I think that many people today, and even many Christian people today, don't stop to think too often about just how much of a problem that the disobedience of our ancestors way back there in the Garden of Eden caused. You know, we we read the account of Adam and Eve and the serpent and their sin and what happened afterwards. And, and, And we know, of course, it caused a lot of trouble for them personally, but it did a lot more than that. It caused a lot of trouble for all creation. In the book of Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul writes about all of creation groaning and waiting for redemption. It caused a lot of trouble to to how the world's worked over all of the intervening centuries and millennia since then. And what happened back then is still causing a lot of trouble for you and for me right here, right now. And and so you might say that what happened back there in the garden actually turned the world upside down and not in a good way. Because all of a sudden, it was very different from what God had created it to be. All of a sudden, instead of there being harmony, there was dissent and the blame game. And in addition to that, at creation, Adam had been given work to do that was not laborious, but it was intended to be a joy. It was supposed to give his life purpose and enjoyment and allow him to be creative along with God. But then what God had intended to be a blessing all changed, and and the earth became weed-infested, and that made the work difficult, and, and much of the time, even to the point of drudgery. All the fun was over. You know, before that happened, everything had been life, life, and more life, and now there was the specter of death that loomed over everything. And so what I'm saying to you is that at the time of what we sometimes in church circles refer to as the fall, the world got upended and it became something quite different from what God's original design was. Sin had come in and it changed everything. And in effect, humanity started standing on its head. But then as the memory of Eden faded this perspective became accepted. This perspective of dissent and death and unpleasantness. And people got so used to living in this upside-down world, and, and they began to see it as normal and just how things are. And so, you know, the world had already gone on that way for thousands of years before something startling happened. And of course, that something startling was the entry of Jesus 
into this whole mess. Jesus comes along and he begins preaching what he calls the good news of the kingdom of God. And in doing that, what he's really doing is he's offering a way for humanity to return to God's original plan, God's original intention, God's way of doing things. And so when he goes around from place to place inviting people into the kingdom of God, what he means is is that when that happens, we begin to order our lives into God's way of doing things. God's desire and intention for us from the very moment of creation. What what he's saying here is that God wants us to no longer live in a selfish and rebellious way that seems way too normal to most people, I'm afraid. But he wants us to live according to his sovereign rule of love. And so that's really what Jesus is starting to offer people when he sat on that hillside in Galilee 2,000 years ago. And that's what Jesus has been offering ever since to anybody who will pay any attention at all. He's still offering it today. He offers to you and me a way to return to to God's wonderful desire for all of us as humans who have been created in his image. And he gives us a way to return to God's way of doing things. What Jesus is doing here is making available this way to be fully human in all of the best ways as we were designed from the beginning. That we don't have to be the warped and scarred and distorted version of humanity that we have become. And so in Matthew's Gospel, the record of Jesus' public teaching starts with these words that we often call, you know, in our Sunday school classes and this and that, the Beatitudes. And, and they're Jesus' description of blessed life in the kingdom of God. Now, human nature doesn't change even over hundreds and thousands of years. What we wear may change. Our communication may change. Jesus didn't have a loudspeaker like I do. How we get around changes. But people, personalities, how they react pretty much stays the same all through history. And it stands to reason that the people who heard Jesus say these words that we call the Beatitudes on that hillside of Galilee already had in mind their own ideas of what the good life and the blessed life looked like. And their ideas were probably quite different than what Jesus put out there. You know, I tried to stop and think of, you know, put myself in their shoes. And I think, you know, Jesus' listeners, had they been writing their own Beatitudes back then, 2,000 years ago, in their context, their Beatitudes might have sounded something like this. 
Blessed are those who are cozy with the Roman occupiers, for they don't have to worry about getting into trouble. Blessed are those who enjoy positions of power, for they don't have to feel the authorities. They are the authorities. Blessed are the wealthy, for they don't have to struggle for daily needs. I think that's what their idea of the good life might have been. And of course, now fast forward 2,000 years, and our surroundings look quite different from the people that gathered in front of Jesus on that day. And I think because of that, the Beatitudes that many people live by today look a bit different. But I tried to come up with some ideas for today that people might think, oh, this is the vision of the good life. Blessed are those who have lots of social media followers, for they will always enjoy somebody's attention and get at least a few likes. Blessed are those who get accepted into the college of their choice, for they will have a great future. Blessed are those who die with the most toys, for they win. Blessed are those who know how to speak loudly, for they will never be overlooked by others. Blessed are those who own a 72-inch TV, for they will have a great view of the Super Bowl. You know, I think every person who has ever lived has their own vision of the good life in their particular context. And I think we get so accustomed to thinking about life in our context that we don't even realize that it got upended way back when, at the time when sin came in and messed everything up. But then Jesus comes in. He shows up, and back then and today, he turns everything that people are used to on its head. Jesus comes in and he offers a life that is at odds with what people are used to. And his description of things that should be received as blessings are not things that most of his hearers at that time would have picked. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, they really don't look that appealing to us that much of the time in our own day and age. Because we live in a me-first world. And so meekness doesn't seem very attractive most of the time. We fear being thought a doormat. And then Jesus talks about pure in heart. Well, that's not a characteristic that seems terribly valued in our current culture, does it? Many of us have been taught to stand up for ourselves, and that is certainly not all bad. Don't take me wrong. But then the question is, how do we square that with being a peacemaker? It can be done, but it can be a challenge. 
And then Jesus talks about persecution, and who wants that? You know, you and I really don't know much about persecution. Oh, we may meet the occasional person who kind of sneers at us for our beliefs or accuse us of being holier than thou, but the people that Jesus was talking to that day would have known all too well what physical and mental persecution was. And, of course, there are people in other parts of the globe today who know all too well about physical and mental persecution. But it doesn't sound appealing. You know, what Jesus offers looks so strange to us. And when we're honest with ourselves, we may not be sure we like it or think, ooh, Lord, do I really have to? I think so often we become so used to the way that our sinful, fallen world works that everything that Jesus suggests here and then through the rest of his teaching that we will find in weeks to come, it just seems all out of kilter. You know, because he comes along and says things, and I'm paraphrasing him, but he essentially says, if someone slaps you, you don't slap back. Do for other people the kind and generous things that you wish someone else would do for you. In other words, be out front with your generosity and, and don't hang around waiting for somebody else to be generous or kind first. Go ahead and, and initiate. And don't become bent out of shape if the person on the receiving end of your kindness doesn't thank you or, or if nobody notices. Don't live by the rule that the one who dies with the most toys wins. You know, instead find your generosity in giving to others. Don't pick on people or jump on their failures or always be criticizing their faults. Be kind and generous in your attitude toward other people. You know, even giving them the benefit of the doubt, even when that can really be hard to do. You know, it's not easy to do this. And to do these things seems sort of upside down, doesn't it? You know, and Jesus goes on to say, here's, here's one that's really upside down. To be willing to lose the life we know and are comfortable with in order to find the life that lasts for all eternity. Jesus is turning everything on its head. Jesus comes along and offers a way of living that looks very different from what we're used to. Very different from what we would call our natural inclinations, which, to put it bluntly, are far too often our sinful inclinations. And Jesus comes in and he invites us to this Holy Spirit-empowered way of living that on the surface looks upside down, but in actuality is getting things right, back, right side up. Back to the way of love that is God's original purpose for us. 
And yes, at the beginning, it looks and feels so awkward. I think when we start on this path with Jesus, we may feel as disoriented as we do, you know, when we're standing on our heads. But when the way of life that Jesus offers is practiced, what it allows us to have is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those things that, in the end, are the things that make our lives good and beautiful and worth living. But we don't have to do this alone. We don't have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to work within us and to turn us upside down so that we're really right side up. If we will just allow him to do that and not stubbornly resist because we've become so at home and comfortable in our old way of living. You know, if you go ahead to the book of Acts and read in the 17th chapter, you find there are some people who are acting against the Christians and accuse the Christians of that early church of turning the world upside down. Well, actually, that's a pretty accurate accusation. Although what was really happening is that the Christians were turning things back right side up. And the wonderful thing is that all of that is still a possibility today for any person who follows Jesus and joins the way of the kingdom. And I wonder what would happen if every one of our lives got completely upended by Jesus. And if, like those early believers, we did the same in the world around us. You know, how is it that we, those of us here today or listening to my voice online, how can we turn Georgetown and Scott County upside down so that it really becomes right side up? May our God help us as individuals and as a congregation of Jesus' followers to do just that. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful that you are in the process of putting things to rights. And Lord, I pray that you would put things to rights in each of us individually. And then as a congregation of believers in this community, we might help turn it upside down so that it looks like you would have it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.